If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 10. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him as well in prayer and ask for his help. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as your word before us says, we are all here in your presence to hear all that you would say to us through your word. So Father, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to know, hearts to embrace your truth, truth that sets us free, truth that changes us, truth that enables us to glorify you and do good for your people. Be pleased, Father, to meet with your gathered people, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're at part two on a tale of two conversions, um, this dramatic development, this watershed moment in Acts. Uh, Pentecost was a, a watershed moment, the, the conversion of Saul, the Pharisee, uh, it was a watershed moment, and here the conversion of uh, the Roman centurion Cornelius. It's the book's turning point, uh, many believe. It's the longest narrative in Acts, and, and as we even go next week, you'll say, haven't we heard this story before? Yes, there's repetition that drives home its importance. Uh, this narrative account is, is about how God brought the Jew, Peter, and the Gentile Cornelius together in Christ. And it shows us how the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he did has, goes out from beyond Jerusalem, indeed to the ends of the earth. Last week our focus was on Peter and his conversion, his ongoing conversion. Uh, today our focus will be on Cornelius and his conversion. Uh, here we are in Acts, a record of the continuing expansion and ongoing growth of the church some of you may be familiar with a missions agency that's probably 10 to 15 years old called Acts 29. Acts 29. Well, where'd they come up with the name? Well, kids, if you look, Acts has 28 chapters. And yet this mission agency is it's kind of saying, you know what? Church planting is continuing. The church planting we see in Acts is going to continue. So Acts 29 is, is a great name to keep that in, in focus. I I want to repeat what was included in the something, uh, excuse me, in the church quote of the week that was in the preparing for worship um, email that went out on Friday, um, and it's this quote: "Of course, God gave us the Book of Acts to do more than satisfy our historical curiosity. Like all Scripture, its purpose is to inform and deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. Acts does this in a special way by letting us view how Jesus." kept his promise to be with his church and build his church through the personal presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Here we are in Acts, being reminded of the promise of God to be with us, the the promise of God to build his church. And as such, Acts really does provide both an anchor for us and an engine for us as it orients us to the work of God then and also to the work of God now. 
Here's a question for all of us. When choosing someone to be a judge, what's the most important quality to look for? I think all of us would agree a judge who is impartial, a judge who does not show favoritism. I love the Olympic Games, Summer Olympics, Winter Olympics, and you'll notice that you've got the athletes in various uniforms, but you see all of these men and women in a, in a uniform, and you see them especially in track and field with tape measures and interesting hats on. Who are they? They're the judges. They're the judges in the Olympic Games, and here's the oath that they have taken ever since 1972. In the name of the judges and officials, I promise that we shall officiate these Olympic Games with complete impartiality, respecting and abiding by the rules which govern them in the true spirit of sportsmanship. In other words, they're not to show favoritism to one particular nation. That is a serious oath. Some of us may be aware of another oath that was administered just this past Thursday by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. He administered this oath to 99 senators. Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of the President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws so help you God. The 99 senators that were there said, we will, and they went on to sign a book with their name to that oath. That's not just a serious oath, that's a sober oath. Well, not only an Olympic judge or a U.S. senator under oath to do impartial justice, but how about a court judge as well, especially in the case when you may be innocent. Recall our Old Testament reading last week in Deuteronomy 10. Here's verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. That's who God is. And in 2 Chronicles 19, when one of the kings of Israel was appointing judges in view of who God is, here's what he said. Now listen, then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. In other words, judges in Israel, you're to reflect who the Lord is. You are to be impartial. Let's read our text now, and I'm going to begin with the last verse, verse 33, that we looked at last week as we move into our text for this week. Verse 33, this would be Cornelius speaking. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea 
beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went, on, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Well, in our study of Cornelius' conversion, we'll take a look at three phases, which I believe our text presents. Preparation, proclamation, and production. As far as preparation, we need to go back before we go forward. We need to look at, quickly at verses 1 through 33. Preparation of Cornelius the man. In verse 2, we see he is good. But he is without the gospel. He is nice, but he is not new. He, he's being described here as a solid citizen. He is devout. He, is, he fears God. He's generous. He's a man of prayer. Again, he is good without the gospel yet. He is nice, but he's not new yet. So the question, again... Is Cornelius saved? Is he a Christian already? Um, you could almost say that if that description was removed from the entire context, both near and far. But another aspect of the preparation of Cornelius is the, the more light principle, the more light principle of God's redemptive mercy. You see, Cornelius has already responded in faith and obedience to the light that he has received. He is a pious man. He, he, he knows the moral law. He, he's been given access to the, to the religion of the Jewish people. He's, he's in one sense a God-fearer. He, he's responding to what he has been shown. It, it's, not a, it's, it's not a works righteousness, though, that's going to earn him salvation. Uh, God's response is he, he's... He's not declared saved yet, but he's been given more light that he would be saved. If you look over to, verse, to chapter 12, verse 14, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So we see by the context, it's, it's going back saying Cornelius is a devout man. He's a, a nice man as were, but he's not a new man yet. And what do we see in verses 7 and 8? What does Cornelius do? He, 
he responds, he obeys his immediate, his immediate obedience to, um, to uh, limited information. And it models, I believe, for us the kind of faith that, that does, as it were, receive salvation. It, it depends on God's word of promise alone. God is faithful. His, his word is true. His promises are true. And Cornelius is acting on what he has been shown thus far. The question's got to be asked, what do we do with what God has shown us thus far? Those of you that are growing up in a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, gospel-defending, gospel-proclaiming church, what are you doing with what you're hearing week after week after week? As you read God's word, what are you doing with what you're reading and talking about at the family dinner table? It's the more light principle. God has given us light. What are we doing with it? Are we acting on it? But as you know, Cornelius is not just prepared, but Peter is prepared as well. And we learned that just as external cultural, cultural barriers between the, the common and the, and the uncommon, the, the holy and the profane, the clean and the unclean has come down. And so also Peter is seeing that the prejudicial barrier between races and ethnic groups is removed as well through Christ. Peter is seeing that no human being is beyond the reach of God's saving and sanctifying work. Peter is learning a lesson about the extent of God's mercy. Indeed, there's a hymn, there is a wideness in God's mercy. And Peter's just beginning now to see, indeed, it is wide as it goes out to the Gentiles. Cornelius opens up his home, opens up his family and friends, brings them around to hear the word. When I read that at the uh, end of our lesson or our reading from last week about he gathers his, his, his friends, his family, and he's ready to hear the word of God. What a hospitable man. A man who wants to invite people into his home who can share good news with him. Peter rightly submits his preferences and his lifetime of training to the obvious will of God that he receives when he had that vision. And we, you and me, must always be ready to have our perspective corrected by the word of God. It's the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God, not according to the newest thing that our culture thinks is wonderful and great. No, changing according to God's word. So are we, like Peter, adjusting our mind, indeed changing our mind according to the word of God? It's a good question to ask ourselves. Look again at verse 33. Everyone, speaker and listeners, are assembled and ready in the presence of God. And so, beginning in verse 34, we have proclamation. Peter's sermon. Notice verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, and what were the first words that he shared? Did you notice it had to do with what he was just recently learning? Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
Notice that Peter could have said, God shows no partiality. That's true. But Peter said, truly I understand. In other words, this is not just something that I've read, although that would be good enough. This is something that has been revealed to me. It's in accordance with God's word. I understand it. And my friends, when we understand God's word and the spirit gives us growing confidence in the word, it's a great place to be. Understanding and appropriate, as it were, humble confidence. That God shows no partiality, no favoritism, is no respecter of persons and determines who it is that it is acceptable to him. Those who fear him and do what is right. Well, what, what does this mean? No partiality. With, in terms of race, ethnicity, or cultural groups that humans make. Humans are very good at sizing us up one another and separating us into groups. And God just doesn't do that like we do it. But what does it not mean? It doesn't mean that Cornelius is already saved. Otherwise, we wouldn't read what we read in 11.14. You see, Peter and Luke the author of Acts, are seeking to avoid two extremes. An extreme of exclusivity where, where the Jews' ethnic pride and prejudice are just so strong, so exclusive. That's on the one hand. But they're also trying to avoid inclusivity, the view that somehow all religions are equally valid. There's danger on both ends of exclusivity and inclusivity. One commentator, William Larkin, says this, Peter's speech clearly teaches us that though God does not play favorites with nations, he does make distinctions in matters of religion. Only those who worship him, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, can know eternal life. Indeed, earlier in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is one name given among men by which men may be saved. Jesus Christ. After his declaration, there's an introduction with a theme in verses 34 through 36. The theme is this, Peter says, God sent his word to Israel announcing what? Good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Peace with God and peace among men accomplished through the person and work of Jesus. Here is the beginning of a universal scope of salvation. It's not just for Jews, but it's for all people, as Psalm 67 mentioned. In verses 37 through 41, you almost see an outline of Mark's gospel, uh, and yet it's interwoven with new insight. Uh, there's the historical reliability of the Jesus of Nazareth, but there's also a recognition of divine accomplishment now that Jesus has been raised from the dead. His life, his death, his resurrection, his power to heal people that were oppressed by the devil. And we see, as you know already in Acts, the ongoing work of Jesus now through the Holy Spirit, the apostles and the church. He concludes his sermon in verses 42 through 43. You see the testimony of the apostles and the witness of the prophets. In other words, the Bible as testimony, the Bible as witness. That Jesus has been appointed by God 
to rule and to judge. He's the judge of the living and the dead. Indeed, the one who alone has conquered death. You see, Peter is reminding them or telling them that in Jesus, they both find, face both a final accounting, that is judgment, as well as a unique opportunity for forgiveness. And Jesus provides forgiveness to those who believe in him. Forgiveness through his name. That is on account of who he is and what he has done. So you see that as verse 43 concludes. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now Peter is just getting started preaching, it seems, about the impartial God and the universal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when he is interrupted by, of all people, the Holy Spirit. Indeed, without the work of the Holy Spirit, there is no saving work. And so our third phase is the production phase. It's a combination of the word preached by Peter and the Spirit that, as it were, shows up. It's Pentecost number two, God interrupts. You know, there's no invitation. There's no um, uh, challenge to repent and believe, as it were. It's God's initiative. It's God's work. We read of the Holy Spirit falling, the Holy Spirit being poured out. It sounds an awful lot like Pentecost. Because here is the Gentiles' salvation, divinely worked, accomplished, complete, authentic. Leave no doubt, as the church will have to conclude, that both Jew and Gentile are saved through the person and work of Jesus. And what is the response of the Jews that are with Peter? They're not surprised, but they are amazed. They are astonished. It's unbelievable. It's unexplainable. And yet, they should have known better. They know Genesis 3 about the promise. The promised one to come. We, 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 they would know of Genesis 12, the 3, the call to Abram, who became Abraham, of that all nations would be blessed through him. God did exactly what he promised. And they're seeing the fulfillment of that promise. And what is the response of Peter? Well, Peter, as it were, says, since God has welcomed them to the church, to himself, he's going to welcome them as well. My friends, why are we here? Today we're here to worship God, right, with one heart, one voice, and we're to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, as Paul writes to the Roman church in Romans 15. There it is, worship of God and welcome of one another. And my friends, Peter, just a little while earlier, would have found that welcome impossible. God is changing Peter. Baptism. They need to receive the sign of the covenant. They, they don't have to become a Jew first. And the church will address this as when we get to Acts chapter 15 and as we saw in Galatians. It's the principle of welcoming people into the church without 
having them first become like us? Is our political, are, are we aligned politically? Are we aligned educationally? Are we aligned by socioeconomic status? No. What is the church aligned by? Union with Christ. Union with Christ. That's the cause of the welcome. I went to a seminary with a lot of international students, Koreans, Africans, Asians, Chinese, Nigerians. There was a sweetness of unity in Christ. And I'm sure you all have that experience as well. Being close to someone spiritually in the faith that you otherwise wouldn't be close to. They don't look like you. They don't eat necessarily what you eat. And yet they're united by faith in Christ. Look with me at the last few words of verse 48, chapter 10. Then they asked him to remain for a few, for some days. Cornelius and the others with him asked Peter to remain for some days. You know, that could be a throwaway line, but think about it with me. Fellowship. We want you to continue to teach us. We want you to nurture us. We want you to tell us more and more about Jesus of Nazareth. It's not a throwaway line. The need, the desire for Christians to be with one another. Indeed, here's Peter and I believe six other Jews with him and his entourage and Cornelius. And they're all together and, and, and Cornelius and others are coming to faith in Christ. The, the, the Holy Spirit gives the gift. Lives are changed. I mean, here's the church, incredibly diverse, Jew and Gentile. And yet it's an exclusive inclusivity, isn't it? The door, as it were, is both narrow. It's Jesus alone for salvation. But it's wide. It's all kinds of people. You see, the people proclaim, people are prepared. That would be Peter proclaims the gospel. Cornelius and others are are prepared. And what happens? The Holy Spirit produces. Right? It's John 1. It's not the will of man or the will of flesh, right? Right? It's the will of God. It's the work of God. So let's revisit where we begin. What do you look for in a judge? If you are innocent, if you're in the right, you look for impartiality, right? You look for impartial justice, but what if you and I are guilty? What if you and I are guilty whether we know it or not? God shows no partiality, we read in verse 34. He takes no bribe. And what's the bribe that you and I often try to get God with? Our good works, isn't it? Who does God accept? Those who present good works to him or those who fear him and do what is right. Well, what does that mean? Turn with me 
to Romans chapter 3. We're just going to spend a minute as we wrap up in Romans 3, beginning in verse 19. This is Paul speaking, writing to the church. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And now verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Now, how can God be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? How is that possible? It's possible because Jesus lived and died and rose again in our place and on our behalf. Kids, if you don't get anything, get this today. Jesus is our substitute, and Jesus is our sacrifice. And if you can dwell on him being our substitute and him be our sacrifice, dwell on that. Dwell on the reality that God accepts anyone, verse 35, who trusts in Jesus And everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 43. My friends, this is the glorious anyone and everyone. There is indeed a wideness in God's mercy. Has it reached you? Has the mercy of God found you? Has he found you? My friends, what are you doing with the light that you have already received? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this conversion story. Father, we thank you that there is a wideness to your mercy that indeed pursues and seeks after and rescues and redeems foolish, dead rebels. Oh God, help us to fear you. Help us to do what is right. And what you have called all people to do is to repent of their sins and place their faith, their trust, their reliance In Jesus Christ. 
O Lord, be pleased to give today what you command. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.